and welcome to We Are History, a very exciting episode today, Angela. Oh yes, it's a We Are History first this week, we John. We have got a guest. Very exciting. A guest. We've got a guest and I, I think we might have made a terrible mistake, John, because what we've done is we've invited like a proper bona fide historian oh, no. to the podcast. It's going to be so shown up. And they're going to show us Somebody up. who's read more than the Ladybird books. <laughs> <laughs> oh no yes so in, oh, this might be the first and last time we yes, do this yes but uh, <laughs> I think perhaps because this episode was so very much inspired by her book we have Absolutely. invited on Hallie Rubenhold we have. who has written a book called The Five we have so this is an episode let's get this straight from the start it's not an episode about Jack the Ripper and it's not necessarily about the case the serial killer himself he's not the only serial killer he wasn't the first he won't be the last and well we know he's not the last there's been hundreds of them but for some reason jack the ripper has sort of entered this almost folkloric state in in yes. of london history you know yes, to the point it, where there's it, museums and um waxwork figures and all sorts about this sort of caped yes Top-hatted villain, exactly uh, stalking the dark streets of London. Exactly, and it's a sort of it is like a pantomime villain, and it's uh, uh, you know it took uh, this book from Halley to mm. s- make everyone stop and go, hang on a minute. Well, the five bo- women at least were murdered here. Yeah. So the, the bottom yeah, so- line is, this is a serial killer of women, and you know these women died in horrific ways. Yet very few people can name the women. Um, there, there were the Whitechapel murders, as they know, there were 11 of them, but there were five, they call them the canonical five, who were linked to Jack the Ripper. Um, the, it's believed that he definitely killed The, the, the manner of the murders was very much the same. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, yeah, and so Angela, you're leading on this one. I so am So do you want indeed. to set the scene? I will. So we are in the late 19th century the 1880s, late 1880s, um, in Whitechapel in East London. Whitechapel and Spitalfields is the area uh, where the murders took place. And they took place between August and November that year. The year being 1888, 1888, is that right? 1888, that's right. Yes. Um, so it's from the 3rd of April to February 19th. 19- well, that's when the Whitechapel murders started. The ah. canonical five were from August to November. Okay. I think it's important to get cuz we're obviously in we're in the Victorian era and I think mm. the, a lot of what we think we know about the Victorians is very much based on middle and upper class Victorians. Yes. Isn't it? So we think of the Victorians as this sort of uptight moral yes. society whereby we actually know that you know there's a lot of sexual oppression so they were a little bit naughty and a little bit into the macabre and all of that stuff. But the sort of social mores that we think of when we think of the Victorians don't really apply to the working classes, right? It was not a good time to be poor. Um, No. You had workhouses, which were institutions that were set up for the completely destitute. Of which there were many. Of which there were many. But you would fight to avoid the, the workhouse. The workhouse wasn't a, you know... A, a sort a, of safe option. It wasn't all like Oliver, the musical, with everyone singing and dancing and all, you know, tap dancing down the cobbled streets of London, was it? Apparently not. No, it wasn't. No. It was grotesque and humiliating. If you and your family were sent to the workhouse, 
you would be processed when you arrived, you would be split up from um, your husband. Um, as a woman, you were only allowed to keep your children with you if they were under six or seven years old. Otherwise, they would be taken from you into workhouse education. Uh, you would then be stripped of all your clothes and put in a workhouse uniform. Uh, you would have to bath in the same water that everyone else had bathed in that day. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was about taking away your dignity and your, um, yeah. because it was very much believed, you know, that the poor were deserving of everything that they. Yes. I mean, the, 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 the thing that's so striking about studying this period, which I did for this one or reading a bit about it, especially in Halle Woodenhold's book was just that the absolute destitution of the majority of Londoners and of, I suppose of elsewhere in a in the richest country in the world with and we always talk about the empire and how the goods have flowed into britain but this was benefited only a very narrow minority of people and the, yeah. the poverty was terrible for ordinary people yeah there was no sense that that, that would be shared with the, the ordinary britain no and and because of trying to avoid the workhouse because once you were in the workhouse you were tainted with that that's on your record that is would stop you then getting work or anything yeah. most work was casual of course there weren't the employment rights and unions that we have today um, or had <laughs> and um so many people working class low-income people were living in lodging houses common house you'd have entire families more than one sharing a room so yeah, the idea think... that there would be any sort of like ev as Hallie says in her book everything that you did you did in front of your family you know yeah. there was no privacy there was no coyness there was no you know your human think... functions were there to be fair, I think I think Foxtons are still trying to promote that model in the <laughs> London housing market. <laughs> For sure. Um, and there was very much an east-west divide in London. And that east-west yes. divide was sort of intersected by Trafalgar Square. And mm. in 1887, a year before the murders, is when the famous Bloody Sunday took place in Trafalgar Square. So there would be upwards of four, five hundred people would sleep rough in Trafalgar mm. Square. Uh, washing in the fountains, you know, and it was this big scandal that that mm. these people were there. And in 1887, the police were sent in and riots ensued and the people were killed and it was just awful. So this is the background of where we're at. And they would have these areas of London that were known as rookeries, uh, Whitechapel, Spitalfields being a rookery. And they were it was sort of a euphemistic name for these areas where people were so poor um, that crime was rife and sex work was rife and i think what's really important to remember is that as a woman at that time you had no recourse to any sort of public support every you no. were your husband's property and if he yeah. wasn't supporting you no one was yes. you know so if you had a violent husband a drunk husband anything like that you couldn't just leave him because you weren't you weren't allowed to divorce him um, no. You know, you wouldn't receive any support. You would, and you would be seen as the failure for failing. So this was to very much the the context of these women who lived in Whitechapel, probably resorted to alcohol mm -hmm. quite often, mm -hmm. uh, who were desperate, you know, just to get money for the lodgings for one night. Absolutely. So they would live literally hand to mouth. Um, yeah. You know, whether you had money for that night for a bed that night in a lodging house, if you didn't have it, you'd be kicked out. Um, yeah. Very few possessions. Quite a lot of them would carry all their possessions with them, uh, you know, sewn into pockets in their skirts. A comb and, and like a that. linen hanky is about it, wasn't it? Yeah. The sort of overarching narrative, and I think what most people assume 
They don't. Jack the Ripper is one of those things, isn't it? You think because you've grown up with the stories around. I think everyone thinks they know the story of Jack the Ripper and oh, Jack the Ripper, yeah. the man who murdered prostitutes in the East End. That's yeah. How you know, so with through with text with the basic facts, Angela, without dwelling on him. Well, without dwelling on him, we don't know who he is, and we never will. Um, I no. think is the first thing to say. There's a million theories, and if that's what floats your boat, go and you can go and research it. There's lots of books, lots of literature, lots of things to read. But what we do know is that these five women were most likely murdered by the same man. They think he possibly had a surgical background or a medical background because of the manner in which he dismembered their bodies. Yep. There was a, around the time of the murders in the East End, there was a large influx of immigrants, particularly from Ireland and Jewish immigrants fleeing the Eastern Europe at that time. And they were viewed with a lot of suspicion. If you look yep. at newspaper articles at the time, there's quite a lot of anti-Semitism around this case, people assuming, because it, it did not fit into the narrative of the decent, moral British imperialist that this murderer no. could have been a British man. Yeah, um, no, it's always easier to blame the outsider. Always. Yeah. I mean, that could never happen today, John. No, thank goodness. Like thank goodness we've moved we've on. We've past blaming immigrants yeah. for everything. But then, you know, the fact that these people were so destitute and poor and, you know, you had dock workers competing for work on the docks and the narrative they were taught, obviously, same as today, is that look at this foreigner, he's taking your work. Right, not yeah. that there's a problem with trickle down economy and there's a problem yeah, yeah. higher above. It's that foreigner's fault, and that was very much yes. the case at that time as well. So um, it was largely assumed that he was a um, a foreign gentleman, but that's not known at all. Um, yeah. I, I say I use the word gentleman there in very loosely. Yes, um, one of them was described. One of the witnesses said he was. Uh, uh, he looked like he'd been a foreign gentleman, didn't mm. they? And uh, they'd only seen the back of his head or something. Exactly. Yeah, and that. That was Mrs. Long, who was um, the last person to see, I believe it was Annie Chapman alive, who was the second victim. And yeah. um, she she said that he, he was a foreign gentleman. And of course, the newspapers, the police, everyone just ran with that. Oh, he's a foreigner. But actually, yeah. she'd only seen a cloaked figure from behind. Um, right. She'd made that assumption, you know. So, And of yes. course, it fitted the narrative of the time to, to say that he was a foreign man. Yes. Um, just very quickly, before we talk to... Hallie, um, I just quickly run through who these five victims were because I think it's really yeah. important that we say their names and we say their names because they were women who found themselves in awful situation that I mean I reading Hallie's book and I do obviously I recommend it it's called The Five and it's incredible but I cried because you just the frustration of reading their stories and seeing how they got into the situations they were in regardless of the background they came from they were all from a poor background, but some, you know, more um, uh, sort of upper lower class than others. Um, yes. The first victim was Marianne or Polly Nichols. At 18, she married a printer's machinist and they got married at the printer's church, St. Bride's in the East End, the one that looks like a wedding cake. Um, yes. And uh, her mother died and she got married and she and her five children lived with her father for a while. Now, I... There's a, word, a thing to say about these women having lots of children. I think with today's head on, we go, why did they just keep having children they couldn't support? You have to remember, they didn't have access to contraception. Yeah. They didn't have access to information about contraception. Contraception was written about in the Victorian era, but if you were illiterate, you didn't get that information. And they weren't in a position to say no to their husbands. Absolutely. There was no such thing as marital yeah. rape in those days. And that was your 
job as a woman was to yeah. and if you got pregnant you just had to deal with it so um yeah. they had five children they lived in a one of the Peabody buildings uh, George Peabody was an American philanthropist who donated quite a lot of money I think about 500,000 pounds at that time um to housing the poor in London and the Peabody estates you can still see them around London yeah they lived there her husband started having an affair with a neighbor she was not able to divorce him on grounds of adultery. That wasn't allowed. Women couldn't divorce their husbands on grounds of adultery. Only husbands could divorce their wives on grounds of adultery. So eventually right. she couldn't cope with this relationship he was having and she left him. Her only choice was to present herself to the workhouse because you had to prove in order to get a divorce that you'd been deserted. Right. So that's how Polly Nichols found herself in that situation. Annie Chapman, a completely different situation. Her father was in the army, was very well respected. Um, she lived in West London, between West London, sort of Notting Hill around that area, and Windsor. Um, her family were very involved in the temperance movement, but Annie, unfortunately, got a taste for rum quite early on. Um, and that is okay. something that is common with these women. But I say to people who judge them on that, the same as I say to people who judge homelessness, homeless people today who take drugs or whatever is how the hell would you get through a night on the streets without it she got married to a footman who had quite a good job with a nobleman who lived in bond street and so they were quite well to do lower class so she would have had staff yeah. at one point herself you know and and so she her background wasn't as desperate as the others however she was a drinker and eventually she right. um had been drunk and disorderly too many times she had stillborn children she had children born with alcohol fetal syndrome that didn't survive she had one daughter that survived one daughter that died of meningitis age 12 and a son who had a severe disability and so her husband had to make the choice that because she kept getting caught for being drunk and disorderly he was in danger of losing his job so he had to abandon her with an allowance because he was still responsible for her and despite the efforts of her family she ended up um, on the streets in Whitechapel, drinking. No evidence that she was a prostitute. Um, yeah, she I mean that, do... that's something we should say about. We should say about all of these women, apart from perhaps the last one, is that there was uh, li uh, little evidence or no evidence really that they were working uh, mm. as uh, what they call prostitutes back then. Uh, and that's sort of one Absolutely. of the points of uh, Halley's book, really, is that they have been through sort of common folklore, been described as prostitutes. And that's given, it's added an air of titillation and sort of sauciness to this uh, tale yeah, of the, they the were East saucy London murderer. in alleyways, yes. you know, plying that's what, their trades. And it's just not the case. No, there's no evidence for it. And so uh, Alice no. Halley has come along as a proper historian and gone, well, where's the evidence? And there is none. Uh, and um, mm. a lot of presumptions were made and, and, and the uh, attitudes of the police sort of reinforced this at the time. Mm. But it's something that needs to be challenged. Absolutely. So then you had Elizabeth Stride, who was a Swedish uh, woman. She was born in Goth near Gothenburg, Sweden, to a rural family. She got a job in service. Now, she was known to be involved with sex work back in Sweden um, and she caught syphilis uh, while in service there and she eventually she came to London. She was uh, someone who sort of lived on her wits very much. She came up with stories which she would use. Uh, she'd say that her husband died in the Princess Alice disaster, uh, the paddle steamer disaster on the Thames and her children died in it and things like that. It was all ways to yeah. survive, really. By the way, Crash Bang Wallet podcast do an excellent episode on the Princess Alice sinking. So do give that a listen. Oh, okay. It's really good. I mean, it's a, 
harrowing, but it's really interesting. Right. She cleaned to make money. Um, in fact, the day before she was murdered, they she'd made money by cleaning lodging houses. Um, again, there's no evidence that she was actually plying a, a sex work trade at that time in London. They know she had a history of it before, but there's nothing to say that that's what she was doing that night. Same with Kate Eddowes, who, um, again, it's alcohol was her main problem. She'd been born in Wolverhampton. She'd moved to London when she was very young, about a year old. And actually, she had a relatively good start in life because she was one of the lucky children who was sent to the Dowgate Charity School. Right. Which there were several charity schools in London, which uh, if you were a girl, you were lucky to get a place there and start to get an education. But sadly, she was orphaned at 15. She ended up in a workhouse. And then her sisters sent her back to relatives in Wolverhampton. She then met up with a peddler called Thomas Conway, um, an Irish retired soldier. And um, she took up with him. And they worked as balladeers, chaunters, did that circuit, selling oh, yeah. poems and things to people on the street. So she was very itinerant. She would, you know, they would move around a lot until they started to have children. She would have been a mot of the week. She would have. <laughs> no, she wouldn't. She was a woman. Um, oh, sorry. What was I thinking? Uh, yeah, what were you thinking? Now, it's also worth saying that we think of Victorians as being, you know, no sex before marriage and marriage being yes. many, many, many working class couples were not married to get married would cost yes, too much money would be something they didn't have the time to do would so, so they just sort of hook up for a bit yeah and if your relationship didn't survive for whatever reason whether you were widowed whether he left you whether he beat you whatever it was in your best interest to, to attach yourself to another man as quickly as possible because a woman on her own was not yeah, able to was. make enough money to survive you know doing bits of crochet work cleaning charring yeah you couldn't survive so that's why they would take up with other men again it, we use our sort of modern day judgment on it where you can survive as a single woman but in that time yeah. you, you just couldn't the night that yeah. kate Eddowes was murdered. She'd been drinking with uh, John Kelly, who was the man she was with at the time. And she'd gone off to try and find lodgings, but she'd got drunk. She'd been arrested. Uh, the police turned her out again when she'd sobered up a bit at 1am. And the probability is that she would tried to find John, failed, slept rough somewhere. And that's when she succumbed to the Ripper. All of them were murdered, they think, in their, in their sleep. They were all had their mm -hmm. throats slashed whilst asleep lying down. So, yep. uh, you know, gruesome, similar pattern in all of them. Absolutely. All of them, of course, until the final one, Mary Jane Kelly, were all murdered on the street outside. Yeah. Um, Mary Jane Kelly, not so much is known about her background, but she was a sex worker and uh, was openly a sex worker. She worked a lot in the West End, um, so she was quite a high-class prostitute in that she would you know court gentlemen yeah. in that scene she was originally from well she says she was born in ireland and was raised in wales nobody really knows that much about her it's said that she might have been married at some point she was sent to paris at one point there was a lot of and hallie talks about this in the book as well a lot of trafficking of sex workers around Europe at that time. So they think she may have been trafficked by her French landlady. She returned after a couple of weeks. She met up with a fish porter eventually she settled with and they moved into a sparsely furnished single room in Miller's Court 
Now, she was the final victim of the Ripper. Obviously, when news of these attacks were in the papers, it was a very scary time to be a poor woman yes. at that time, you know. And so she would invite friends of hers who were prostitutes to stay in their rooms for safety. Right. And her gentleman, uh, Barnett, Joseph Barnett, wasn't too keen on that. So he sort of abandoned her, left her there in the rooms. And it was in bed in her room where she was murdered. But all this time, of course, the the police are unable to find anything. The pressure mm-hmm. is growing on the Home Secretary. Uh, the, the London newspapers are loving every gory detail of it and whipping up hatred. Oh, yeah. There's letters. Again, that could never happen today. No. Letters to the uh, Scotland Yard from people claiming to be Jack the Ripper. There's a human so kidney. So many hoaxes. There's only one yeah. letter that they thought... Well, the, from, the famous From Hell letter, which there's a whole... You know, film about, but yeah, um, that letter is is the only one that's thought could have come from the Ripper himself because it contained half a kidney. Yes. And he claimed that he'd eaten the other half, yes. and of course, this played into the idea of the savage foreigner because you know a British yes. person wouldn't indulge in cannibalism. cannibalism. That couldn't possibly Absolutely. happen. Absolutely, but then the murders suddenly stopped. Yeah, and nobody really knows what happened. Whether he left the country, died. Ended up in prison for something else. Nobody yeah. knows. But I think what's interesting about the whole story is the cult that has grown up around it and the fact that, yeah. you know, even today people are morbidly fascinated with this this yes. case and still think they can solve it, you know. Yes. I remember back in the uh, my youth, I used to write a spitting image, uh, which is back now on our screens, but I was we we're in the East End. We we're in this East End uh, sort of uh, factory where we used to do the show. And every now and then there'd be a crowd outside the window and you'd hear this guide go, and the, the, the Ripper's third victim was found just here. And you'd mm. see all these sort of Japanese tourists sort of taking picture of this 1960s sort of car park. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and they're still advertising these tours online now. You can still see them yeah. there saying, the East End has changed very little since then. And you think, well, it has changed completely. It was all bombed <laughs> to high heaven in the 1940s and uh, then demo- demolished since. But they, they try and sort of market this sort of, oh, down the lanes of London, you will go like Jack mm. the Ripper before you, you know. And it's it's sort of sick. Well, I think I have a sort of theory that it, because it, I think in our mind's eye, it's sort of tied in with the world of Sherlock Holmes. That sort yes. of London, you know, it's the same London, isn't it, that you think of, that sort of foggy... Di- but, you know, of course, Sherlock Holmes Jekyll is and a... Hyde. Yeah, but they're not real. <laughs> Whereas this yes, is five yes. women brutally murdered um, and are not yes. ever really considered in the story. So that's, in a nutshell, the story of Jack the Ripper. Um, we're going to have a little break, and in our second half, we're going to talk to Hallie Rubenhold, who wrote the book The Five... Um, and just get her view on the sort of cult that's grown up around Jack the Ripper. And indeed, I'm very interested in the reaction to her book, which I think tells us a lot about the misogyny that is still with us. We'll see you after this. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of We Are History. We are joined after a little bit of By another technical... person, John. It's exciting. It's exciting. We've been just spent uh, a week and a half trying to sort out the technical stuff, but I think we're there. <laughs> Welcome to We Are History, Hallie Rubenhold. Hello. How are you? I'm good now that we've managed to get the tech sorted out. I realise I'm a historian. I'm I'm really not a tech expert. And well, so 
anything modern just really does my head in. This is our lives now, isn't it? This is we have to dedicate a certain amount of time every day to going. My Wi-Fi is not working, or this isn't working, or how do I do this? That's exactly. just we're building that into our lives now. Anyway, Hallie, <laughs> welcome here. to Real History. Welcome. <laughs> Thank uh, you. You're our first ever guest. We feel very honoured to have you, award-winning historian, the Bailey Gifford Prize, the five one, which is about Ooh. the most significant nonfiction prize, I think, isn't it? Yes, right? yes, that's well, right. So f- congratulations, congratulations on the publication of your book. John, uh, John, we've got someone bona fide on who's going to show us up, John. So, so history was the olden days, is that right? Yeah, the olden <laughs> days, way back when, ye old. That's right, well... Um, we wanted to have you on because we both read your book and are very interested in how I think you really sort of reframed a bit of history. Uh, and that's not something that every historian can claim to have done. You said this is what has been accepted as the common sort of received knowledge on this period and this incident. And you said, I'm not having that. And you turned it on its head and and people have gone, yes, she's right. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Tell us how you came to come by it. Well, I mean, interestingly, you know, I kind of, I often tell people I, I sort of came through the back door to this because the first book I wrote, The Covent Garden Ladies, was uh, such a hit, did so well. And that was about sex workers in 18th century London. And I thought I'd like to do what I did for women who had no voice in the 18th century. I like to do that for women in the 19th century. And, okay. and I, I, I thought, well, who are the most famous sex workers in the 19th century? Well, that would be the victims of Jack Ripper. And of course, as soon as I started doing this research, you know, one of the first things I I came across was, you know, the the, the question of were they actually sex workers? Because the evidence that I was looking at certainly didn't point to that for all five of them. Wow. Um, That uh, Covent Garden uh, book is the inspiration for harlots, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, that's right. So Angela's been leading on this and doing the sort of uh, was doing most of the talking in the first half. Angela, you gave us a quick sort of summation of the five women involved. Well, I think what's really important is to say their names, right? Because absolutely, I until I read the five, I couldn't have told you the names of any of the victims of of Jack the Ripper. I'm, I was never. I know a lot of people have read a lot of stuff you know the stuff's out there isn't it if you want it the films the movies the books the magazines the websites whatever if if you're into it but what do you think it is about about this particular serial killer that has still keeps people interested today because he's not the first serial killer there's been plenty since him well, what is it about this story I, well i think i mean that's a really good question and i think there are lots of things that feed into this first of all obviously it's, it's an unsolved mystery um, nobody yes. knows who he was. He was never caught. Obviously, we're assuming it was a he. It could have been a woman, probably not a woman, but it was. It yeah. could have been a group of people. We, we just don't know. And do you know what? We're never going to know. That's the reality yeah. of it. It sort of has entered into national legend. It's become a national myth. And it, it entered into legend. I mean, it was a headline that frightened people at the same time but a lot of other fictional things were frightening people. So at the same time that you had Jekyll and Hyde, at the same time yes. you had Dracula, at the same time you had the birth of Sherlock Holmes, you yes. had Jack the Ripper. And all of this fed into, uh, a, a, I didn't want to... Sort s- of gothic horror yes, sort of, yeah. A, a gothic horror, a kind of cultural yeah. moment for yes. Britain. And so 
it's not surprising also that we find that this has become mythologized and also that people seem to be rather confused about Jack the Ripper being having been a real person and having killed mm. real people. Yes. Um, so he's become a sort of pantomime villain, hasn't he? Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, it's interesting you mentioned Dracula because I think the red cloak and the you know the black cloak with the red lining comes straight from Dracula, really, from from Bram Stoker's book. And, yeah, um, it really it really does. You know, and there was so much speculation as to who Jack the Ripper was, and you know, for a while there was this whole thing about oh, Jack the Ripper was a toff, and you know, so you get yeah. this idea of this man running around in the top hat and the cape with a cane. I mean, there's yeah. a, the one mm. thing that we can almost say absolutely for certain is that Jack the Ripper was not running through the East End of London in 1888 in a top hat, <laughs> carrying a cane and wearing a cape. You know, for a very, very basic reason, which again is very much rooted in social history, which is we know that, well, first of all, there, there was this this trend for what was called slumming. And right. so um, wealthy people from the West End would come into the East End for a night out and often they would put on the clothes of very poor people um, and they try to fit in with the general population Blimey. and they'd have a night out. But the, the thing is, and this is mentioned in, in, in a lot of journalism, also Jack London does it around 1900 when he writes People of the Abyss, but the, you know, the people who lived in the East End, the poor, could recognize somebody who was not poor. Didn't matter yes. if they were wearing the garb. It was they the way they they weren't skinny. Their eyes weren't hollowed out. Well, well it, but they? it's even yeah. more basic than that. It, it was in the gait. It was in the speech. It was in the way yeah. they conducted themselves. It was, you know, class divisions were so entrenched at that time. And it's a bit like it's a bit like male stand-up comics now going. Have you ever noticed? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, we can tell you're posh. Stop trying to fool us. Yeah, well, well class tourism's still a thing, isn't it? That you still there's the pulp song, Common People. is yes. about exactly that, isn't yeah. it? And, and, and the Mockney sort of... accent. Yeah, you know, yeah. The yeah, kind yeah. Of, you know, yeah. I went to Harrow, but I'm going to pretend I I yeah, grew up yeah. in Dagenham. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the myth endured and the a notion that they were all uh, prostitutes or sex workers, as we might say now, were was that uh, immediate or is that something that's evolved over time? Well, you know, it's the way the media handled the, the headlines. Yeah. But it's also, again, you know, with all of these things, it's, it's very rare that there's just one simple explanation for why mm -hmm. things happened. So Victorian society is to blame for the construing of these women and the way that they were. And obviously the press printed it. But the idea that a woman without a home, without a family, who was leading what was called an irregular life, was somehow morally damaged and morally deficient. And by morally deficient and morally damaged, it, you know, this was conflated with what I would say, you know, there's the fallen woman and the broken woman. So the broken woman is the woman who, you know, may have mental problems, you know, is homeless, uh, drinks, you know, has a, a whole kind of, the whole range of problems. And the fallen woman, who we know very much from Victorian fiction and television and this sort of thing, who is the woman who has had sex outside of marriage. And if you are morally compromised, if you were a deficient woman, which a woman on the street would have been, you know, all of this stuff is conflated. Yes. It's all one in the same. So a woman living on the street 
they, they didn't care, you know, yeah. if she was a homeless woman. A homeless woman meant you were probably having sex with all sorts of people. You were morally defective. You were yes. a broken woman. So it was one in the same. And nobody bothered to find out. But if you're a journalist in Victorian times, it's a little more salacious to uh, say that they were prostitutes rather than they were just, you know, well, the assumption grim was homeless made. alcoholics. Yeah, yes. the assumption was made by society in general also. Yes. But, you know, also it makes for good copy, you know, That's in a think, sense. Yeah. yeah, what you're saying is... In effect, these women are getting what's coming to them. Because That's what I think is interesting yeah. about it. And yeah. That's why I think it's endured so much. That the idea of the bad woman punished. Yes. Uh, uh, even though it was a very brutal and savage death by this random murderer. You know, there's a sort of Victorian Christian uh, notion that's been handed down that, you know, thou must be good and thou must only have sex exactly. in marriage. Or th- or this will be your fate. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know... Being society's moral compass was the job of women. And yeah. so if a woman failed at that job, then, you know, she's really failed everybody. And as you say in your book, that's something that endures, isn't it? It endured with um, the uh, Steve Wright, isn't it? The Absolutely. killer in Ipswich, yeah. where the judge had to say to the jury, you know, the fact that these women were sex workers does not mean they deserved... To, to be murdered. What happened to them? Exactly. You know, this is not their punishment. And that was in the 21st century, that that yeah. point was still having to be made to a jury. So this is something that endures, isn't it? This idea that that yes. they are somehow, these women, because they were sex workers, regardless of the fact that most of them probably weren't, but that they somehow deserved what was coming exactly. to them. You know, it was the thought of their lifestyle. And yeah. rather than the focus being on the man who is deficient in murdering women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, no. I've got I, when I was reading about all that, I did this idea popped into my head, which I'll, I I don't know whether it's got you know any merit at all, but I wonder if the amount of publicity given to Jack the Ripper and his murder of apparent prostitutes has sort of fed into the the, the, the damaged psyche of the Ipswich murderer or uh, the Yorkshire Ripper, and that those those murderers were influenced by this sort of template that was set down by Victorian Britain. I, I, I'm sure there's all sorts of mad mm. psychology going on inside those men's heads, but maybe making prostitutes a target was sort of invented by this Jack myth mm. and then developed, you know, in the 20th century. I have no idea. I think it's something that is, I mean, even if you look at someone like Jimmy Savile, you know, the fact that he would target girls that were at, reform school or yeah it's marginalized people marginalized people tend to be victims of crime you know i mean look at dennis Mm. nielsen as well yes absolutely you know it's exactly the same situation um and you know it's marginalized people who can disappear who you know who can be picked off and their absence won't be noticed as readily as some high profile person who goes and it's that thing isn't yeah like if it's a a blonde, blue-eyed, middle-class girl that goes missing or is murdered, that's in the headlines. Yeah. Yes, well, well, Madeline I do, McCann. Uh, look at, yeah, look yeah. at yeah. Madeline McCann. Perfect yeah, I do remember, yeah. actually, when um, the Yorkshire... I was only uh, at university, but when the Yorkshire Rippers, uh, one of the, his last victims was murdered, she was a, uh, a student at one of the universities there in Yorkshire, I think Leeds. She wasn't a sex worker. And the attention that the BBC News gave to her funeral, they did their whole thing. They played bridge over troubled waters over it. And even as an 18-year-old, I was really shocked at the 
the sort of contrast with the coverage of the the prostitutes who've been murdered. They're saying, this is really sad. That was a bit sad. This is really sad. They made a sort of qualitative judgment about the individuals who were victims. And that's, you know, that's in our lifetimes. Do you think that's also part of that, going back to, to Jack the Ripper, partly that that sense of it being a comeuppance almost for those women or, a, yeah. you know, well, that's the result of the life that they live. That's allowed people to be able to... Pass judgment. Um, sort of, yeah. Yeah, and process it. And, and to continue having this fascination with Jack the Ripper because it was only prostitutes that were murdered. So it's okay yeah, to, Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the idea. So, you know, the last chapter of my book is called Just Prostitutes mm. because that's the attitude. Well, you know, they were just prostitutes. Just, just prostitutes. Uh, and that uh, misogyny lives on. I, I would love to quiz you a little bit about the reaction to your book, Hallie, because that is like a whole story in itself. So you, you know, put this history out there and it was very well received. But there's a lot of amateur historians out there who've made it their life's work to find who Jack was. And they were very the miffed. Ripperologists. Oh, the ripperologists. <laughs> a lot of them were very miffed to have a, a woman come along and sort of uh, change the narrative. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, again, you know, there's no simple explanation for what was motivating them, what's behind these attacks. But I think it's a deeply personal thing for a lot of them because, you know, these these and they are mostly men and they are all all almost exclusively white and there are a handful of women and interestingly the women are incredibly vicious it's like women in biker gangs you know they have to (laughs) prove that they are even worse than the men and more vicious and like watching them do these sorts of mental gymnastics to kind of turn it on its head and say that because I didn't find evidence that all five were sex workers. I'm actually anti-sex worker and I'm as bad as Jack the Ripper because I'm now denying these women of their actual identities. And, right. and uh, which is the most ridiculous thing. And, I mean, there's so much. These are on blogs or something? Or no, do they do on these? On blogs. I mean, it's, well, you know. Your reviews? Do they go on your reviews? Yes, review? on, on my, well, it's so interesting. Now there's this sort of template for how they have now all agreed on what it was exactly I did with this book. And they agreed right. amongst themselves that I had A, and whenever I see these these two terms Phrases. appear, I know, I know this is a ripperologist, that A... I bet I know what one of those terms is. I, you, you, a feminist agenda. Feminist agenda. Yeah. I, I've written feminist it down. Feminist agenda. Feminist yeah. agenda, there. I, I would I like to say. know... What exactly is on that feminist agenda? Because no one's ever sent me the feminist agenda. I don't know. Min- what minutes the of the last meeting. Yeah. It's all very boring. Yeah. Kind of, Apparently there's a feminist agenda, but I've not been invited to the meeting well, yet. Sort of, I'm miffed. Kind of, you know, kind of dominate all men. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I have a feminist agenda and that I have ignored the facts their the facts fact, that they the, published the in their facts. self-published books. Yes, and, yeah. and they all read each other's self-published books. But that the <laughs> facts, that somehow that, you know... I mean, this is the most extraordinary thing, is when I started the research on this, what really blew me away was, like, I, I initially thought there was this, like, huge body of evidence. So I was going to go to the archives, and there were going to be, you know, tons and tons of boxes given to me. And I opened the files, and they're newspaper reports. So they don't actually even have from the coroner's inquests. No, they were burned in the Blitz, weren't they? Some of it was destroyed in the Blitz. Well, oh, they went missing. People yeah. took the files. Mm. But 
the main set of documents that we have that give us an idea about what happened and what witnesses saw and things like that were supposed to be the coroner's inquest reports. So they only exist for Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly, the last two. So for the other three, it's missing. So all we have are newspaper reports. And I looked at, uh, well, okay, so I asked a question on one of these forum sites. I said, so what is the definitive source here? What are you working from? What is, you know, is it the Telegraph? Is it the you know, is it Times? Is it Illustrated <laughs> Police News? What? And the response I got was laughter. You know, what do you mean definitive source? Okay, so, you know, so you lay out 10 different versions of what was said by a one witness and you get 10 different versions. Right. So there is no fact here. Yeah. There is no fact. And actually some of these accounts actively refute others and contradict yes. others so what are we dealing with you know so he, we have people who are trying to solve this case still it's based on based on newspaper based reports on newspaper and reports yeah. and yeah. and you know things that a police officer has written down i mean experts academics i know who are experts in police history and the experts in for example in the history of sex work have said you, you can't take that stuff on face no. value because you have to no. contextualize it with the time and what we know about attitudes. So did you try and engage with some of these reporologists? Oh, yeah, they did just they won't have it because now they have this script. They think, yeah. oh, first of all, that they think history is just about finding things, okay, right. and that they found all this stuff that I then used all this stuff and then filled my book with padding and lies. So okay. everything that they can't lay claim to is padding and lies, stuff that I made up. Okay. okay. So, mm. the, and this is the script now. This is it. Wow. What interests me about them say, you know, accusing you of having a feminist agenda is the sort of refusal to accept that the story as it's been passed on from when it happened to today has been with a patriarchal agenda the entire time. You know, the newspaper reports had that agenda, the, you know, to, to then say that there's a feminist, it was about time that it was... Well, that, yeah. that, 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 up, that right? somebody should talk, should speak up for the women and they would say, well, we're doing that. Yeah. All these white men are doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah who are, have always been more interested in finding out who the killer is. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, your book has uh, reset the agenda, but it's still out there, you know, researching this, even on things like Wikipedia, it'll, if, it'll say... Jack the Ripper murdered five prostitutes. Uh, and if you go, you know, have you tried, have people changed it and had it oh, changed oh, back? Oh, guess what? Well, Wikipedia, yeah. well, this is very interesting. Those sites, the Wikipedia pages for the Ripper victims are dominated by Ripperologists who wow. have basically prevented me and everybody else I know who has actually tried to change stuff yeah. on Wikipedia. They have basically banned any mention of my book on those pages. That's because your your name wasn't mentioned on the legacy. Yeah, well, they, they, so, wow. they've actually taken it down. Every time somebody puts it up, they take so it down it's... because they say I'm, quote, unquote, fringe because I'm not accepted by the mainstream. Winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize. Yes, and nominated for <laughs> well, the Wilson Prize in history. Hallie, 
Hallie, we have thousands of listeners to this podcast. Listeners, get on Wikipedia, go on the forum, get on the discussion page mm. and, and say... And change those. And change this. Change it. Make it that any mention of Jack the Ripper and who he murdered, say the names, not the uh, myth that they were prostitutes. You can do it on the Jack the Ripper page on the year 1888. It says yeah. and their fifth prostitute was murdered. These things can be changed if enough people uh, make a noise and get on those uh, discussion pages that they have on Wikipedia attached to the articles. Um, it's 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 interesting i think for the, some of those ripperologists their very identity that they have created for themselves is experts in jack the ripper and they suddenly feel like you know that, that's been robbed from them by this woman who, by someone who's actually done the yeah someone yeah. who's a proper who's got <laughs> None a, of them have a history uh, degrees they you know yeah. and there's no yeah. history degree between them you've um, got several history degrees yeah i have three <laughs> Um, three degrees and in, in in history. I've got a record by the three degrees. <laughs> <laughs> but no, a proper historian who does primary research. I wonder how many of them attempted primary research. Well, they, they, uh, they probably have. But it's the thing about history is it's not history isn't about, you know, finding facts. This isn't solving a crime. They have to understand that any of these documents that, you know, are now 132 years old. First of all, they wouldn't yeah. stand up in law today. You're not a police officer on the case you have to look at these documents as historical documents you have to contextualize them you have to unpick them you have to analyze them um and that's not what is happening here yes and then the culture hasn't changed sufficiently that uh, automatically we think let's challenge this i'm sure you're aware of the uh, ripper museum that was opened in the east end yes. in 2015 so the application mm. did you read about this angela the application mm. for this place uh was put into tower hamlet's council as a museum of women's history so they granted planning permission that the hoarding went up and it was the jack, jack the, the ripper, ripper museum. museum and he said oh well we have named you know we've got pictures of uh, all the victims but it's basically a, a, a complete trick that was played on the council but the guy who set it up had been head of diversity at google weirdly and uh it was picketed and protest but it you know it's not not stopped uh he completely uh lied uh, about what he was going to do uh went from women's history it was going to it was going to feature things about suffrage and uh, uh the emancipation and women's of women. lives and instead and... it was just about a bloke who murdered a load of women yeah so yeah with, that's, with, you know, with a... that's women's history well, yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, exactly. murdered. that's the history of and women is yeah. they get murdered and one of yeah. the one of the victims lying prone on the ground bleeding right. and you can take pictures with her so wow. that's, that's so you still got these tours around London. Did you ever do one of the tours, Helen? Do you know what? I at several points I was tempted, and I just thought, do you know, I'm going to get so angry that I won't <laughs> be able to restrain myself. And also now, I mean, I, I dare dare not show my show face. your face. Yeah, uh, have you had them come and have you had any of them come and heckle you at talks or anything like um, that? I have, I have oh had. Uh, interestingly, John, John and I are both ambassadors for the London Library. Um, and it was at a London Library talk and a uh, ripperologist stood up and told me that I was wrong, but that he hadn't actually read my book yet. <laughs> oh, that's um, amazing. Like part of the course. That's yes. such a male thing. Sorry, John. No, no, I know su- exactly what you mean. Such a male thing to do. Go, you're wrong. I mean, I, I assume you're wrong. I haven't actually checked. <laughs> yes. But yeah. I you're a woman, so you must have got yeah. it wrong. Well, you, you must have got it wrong. You do realise they were prostitutes and there's lots of evidence. And I said, well... Um, what evidence? And and he said, well, what about when Polly Nichols left the lodging house? And she said, see what a jolly bonnet I'm wearing now. Like, well, see what a jolly bonnet I have now. And I said, how is that evidence that she was a prostitute? 
it's what they want to believe. And I think that's what is at the heart of this, is the need to feel that these women were prostitutes, mm. so that there is some sort of logic to it all, and that there's mm. some sort of well, uh, meaning, it's meaning also, to their I deaths. Mean, you know? I mean, yes, I totally agree. But I also think, you know, you have to think that, you know, ripperology is fraught with infighting. And oh, the one thing that they can all agree on is that Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes. That is the one well, thing. It's like a cornerstone of ripperology. And you've taken that away. And I pulled it yeah. out. Yeah, that's fascinating. So my hope is that because of your book, this will gradually die away, this, this myth, uh, and that we won't have... Uh, you know, video games of Jack the Ripper. We won't have graphic novels about Jack the Ripper and endless sort of jokey sort of Halloween characters. What Halloween Jack the costumes Ripper. of Jack the Ripper? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's, nice. a, there's a there's a Canadian baseball team that was going to change their. There's a place in Ontario called London, so they were going to call themselves the London Rippers. Oh, you're kidding! Uh, oh, that's yeah, terrible. That's going to be their nickname, <laughs> and it's like. And then the women's groups protested, and I think they stopped. Mm. But the, it's just like a joke. Being a well, you know, you, you know about in the East End that there are businesses which use Jack, Jack the Ripper, where you allude to Jack the Ripper. So you have Jack mm. the Clipper is a chain of barbershops. Um, uh, mm. You have a Jack the Chipper, which is a chippy. And I hate yes. to sound like a <laughs> feminist killjoy, but <laughs> actually, you know, that's kind of not funny. No, I sort yeah. of agree with you. And I, this, I've just slightly... Well, you wouldn't have in your in Leeds, you wouldn't have the Yorkshire chipper. No, you wouldn't. That just wouldn't no, happen. You wouldn't. It's actually people's living memory. Yes. You know, but it's it's still a serial killer that murdered women. Like that, Yeah, I always know. thought it was a slightly unfunny joke in... Um, uh, what's the um, with a sitcom where they've all got surnames of serial killers? Gavin and Stacey. They're all called the Sutcliffs and the Nielsens and the... <laughs> And I was thought as a, I was thought, really, guys, is that a funny yeah. joke? You know, it's sort of very sort of uh, obliquely. You know, I don't think I ever noticed that yeah, or knew all, that. All their surnames are serial killers. They're shipmans and they're, you know, and uh, it's like, it's not that funny, guys. People died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's me maybe a bit odd square and boring, I think. What I think is really interesting about your book as well, Hallie, is that, and we were talking about this a bit before you came in, is just the social history of it. A lot of what we're taught about the Victorians is very much about the middle and upper classes. We think of the Victorians as being you know, those sort of terribly stayed and oppressed people that were a bit kinky and interested in the macabre and all of that. But of course, they're, that's very much the upper classes we're talking mm. about there and their way. And actually, from your book, to get a real sense of... My, my family are from the east end of London originally, or southeast of London, Deptford, Bermondsey, that sort of area. And to think of what their lives would have been like, you know, the reality of... of my family it, we're not taught that no you know no, so it's exactly. such a good overview of that you know the fear of the workhouse the living hand to mouth the casual work all of that stuff it's really fascinating and that's the backdrop that's interesting yeah. not this sort of saucy killer in the you know with in, the, in the fog women in yeah. in the fog with wen yeah. bar wenches and all the, yeah. with sort of it's just this horrific way that most of the country was living most people exactly and it was most of the country as well. Yes, it yes. was. Yeah. You know, if we and again, you know, this is something that I say. It, it's and it, it taps into uh, something much bigger that's going on in, in history at the moment, which is uh, telling these stories that have been cut out of, of the historical record and the way we talk about history. For example, if we look at well, the experiences of the working class, and if we look at the idea of what the Victorian world was like was that you know, everybody was very circumspect and, and um, uh, very prudish. Well, if you look at the sexual practices of the working classes, and 
the amount of people who had sex outside of marriage and you realize that that was pretty normal and you realize that the working classes were the majority of the population then you can turn our understanding of victorian sexual morals on its head because you know actually most of the population probably was having sex before marriage yes and yes. and was having children out of wedlock and was getting you know was shacking yeah. up with people who they weren't marrying and yeah, yeah. the exception were the middle classes and the upper classes and so yes. actually that completely changes how we understand that period in history yes mm. Yes. I mean, I think also an important point is that history is a constantly changing thing and uh, that the history we all learnt at school isn't history. It's a version that was told from a certain perspective and yeah. we have to sort of try and understand that that is going to evolve and change as we realise, you know, and it's not just about kings that. and queens. People don't, no. people don't get that. And exactly, it's not just about kings and queens. And I think a lot of people don't understand that history is not fact it's argument and it's a discussion it's a discussion and that discussion is always evolving and always changing and perspectives are always shifting thank you so much Hallie because it's I mean the book was incredible and I've said to John like I it really hit home and as I've just said then about the conditions for particularly for women and the thing that really got me I remember um and I've definitely cried was you know when a woman wanted to leave her husband but just couldn't, mm. you know, whether they were violent, whether they were... And just to be thank, we've got a long way to go, hence we've still got a feminist agenda, but, <laughs> you know, my God, have, you know, the fact that I've got autonomy and freedom and, you know, and, and that I physically can support myself financially, which was just an yeah. impossibility. So it's all very well making a moral judgment on women who were sex workers, but... That could be the only way to feed exactly. you and your family. Exactly. Literally yeah. the only yeah. way, exactly. you know. And you show yeah. me someone who wouldn't do whatever they had to do to feed their children. But it's also, yeah. you know, again, what we considered sex work at the time, what it actually was, you know, I mean, even the police were talking about this. It, it was very, very difficult to distinguish working class practices around sexuality from actual yes. sex work. Because if you're living mm. at a time when... Any type of sex outside of marriage means the woman can be called a whore and women were having sex outside of marriage because, you know, their partners left them and women were financially dependent on men. Women could not earn a decent wage to keep themselves and their families without living with a man. And a lot of that happened outside of wedlock and, and relationships were dissolved very quickly and then reformed with other people. And to the middle classes, this appeared like prostitution. Yes, yes. And a modern perspective of prostitution is images of streetwalkers and yes, um, it was uh, much rich more, men picking them up, much more mixed up. Than yes, that. much yeah. more yeah. complex. Much, yeah. much more yeah. complex. Yeah. And actually that final chapter in your book really goes into that, doesn't it? And it's really, fact, when you actually look at what the scope of so-called sex work prostitution is, mm. that actually... The fact they were labelled prostitutes doesn't mean they were prostitutes in the sense that we yeah, understand yeah. it. Exactly. exactly. So if we take away anything from today, it's that you're going to go on Wikipedia and other forums and challenge these things every time they see them. Too many men on Wikipedia, I would say. So women listeners, get on there and start... Uh, uh, Sort of changing things. There's, there's We're a too reason. We're busy living in the real world. John. I know you're right. There's a, 
There's a reason that the Star, the Star Wars entry is longer than, you know, the, the Mary Shelley entry. Um, so uh, thank you, Hallie, for coming on We Are History and setting the record thank straight on so Jack oh, Congratulations pleasure. again on your wonderful book and, uh, and a, an achievement that few historians, I think, can claim to have really changed the narrative and made people look completely again at something that they thought they knew everything about. So uh, thanks for coming on and uh, good luck with your next project. Are you allowed Thank to share you. that with us? Yes, I am. In fact, I'm staying uh, in true crime um, and oh. I am examining um, the murder of Bill Elmore by Dr. Crippen in 1910. Oh, oh, oh wow. very exciting. Oh, we'll look, I well, feel maybe, another episode coming oh, up. Yes, we'll have to get you back when it's published. Thank you so much, Hallie. Very welcome. Uh, that's all from Thank We you, Are History. Hallie. Don't forget to go onto Twitter at We Are History Pod. Let us know what you think. Give us any ideas for things you'd like us to cover. And go onto your Apple iTunes and give us a review. Five stars, please, if you like, and write something nice. Um, if you could, we've had one shitty review this week, so write loads of nice ones. To it, was sort a, it was a ripperologist. It was a ripperologist. <laughs> it was definitely a ripperologist. <laughs> we've only had one shitty review though, John. So I'll take yeah. that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I'll take that. A one star. <laughs> All right. That's all for this week. Catch you next time. See you next time. Bye.